Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where people tell me five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to bury and forget. My guest in this episode is the political and environmental activist George Mombio. George writes a regular column for The Guardian and has written a large number of books on such subjects as human rights, climate change, the corporate takeover of Britain, global justice and, well, plenty of other key issues. His best-selling books include Feral, Rewilding the Land, Sea and Human Life, Heat, How to Stop the Planet Burning and Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis. His latest book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, argues very convincingly, in my opinion, that we are farming the planet to death. He warns that we risk pushing not just our global food system too far, but collapsing the greater Earth system we all rely on. George was recently a guest on BBC Question Time, where clips of him fundamentally eviscerating the Cabinet Minister Johnny Mercer, who was arguing in favour of the government's Rwanda policy, went viral the next day. Not surprisingly. In 1995, Nelson Mandela presented George with the United Nations Global 500 Award for Outstanding Environmental Achievement. He won the Sir Peter Kent Award for his book, Amazon Watershed, and he is a recipient of the SEAL Environmental Journalism Award for his work at The Guardian. In 2022, George Mombio was awarded the Orwell Prize for Journalism. I think George is a remarkable and fascinating man. I think you will too, after you've heard the five things he'd like to have in a time capsule. 
I mean, I have to say that your voice sounds a lot better than when yeah, I last heard you. It's been a bit rubbish. We were going to do a recording, weren't we? We yeah. were going to record you, and then and then suddenly question time came along, <laughs> which I have to congratulate you on because oh, it's you. so rare to see somebody with a left wing bent <laughs> as actually being allowed to finish what they were saying and yeah. to win an argument. Yeah, they won't let me back on again. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh no, that's not supposed to happen. I know exactly. Exactly. That's not allowed. It's against the rules. You made a good argument. Everybody <laughs> applauded. What's going on? <laughs> made our lovely Tory man look like an idiot. Yes. Wow. Yeah. We can't have that. Can't be. No. That. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? People always say, "Oh no, that's just your bias." But mm. the more I watch it, the more I'm convinced mm. that's true. Well, you can see it's, uh, someone has compiled the figures. Right. A guy called Russ Jackson. And, you know, there's, I think, the only person who's not on the right and could be broadly described as left who's had more than 10 appearances this century is Bonnie Greer. And right. all the others who've had more than 10 appearances, they're all on the right or even the far right. Mm. It's really, it's very striking. This is on non MPs we're talking about. Yeah, but it's extraordinary as it's some of the far-right people they have on. The number of times that that dreadful man has been on. Yeah. I'm loath to say his name. Even. No, no, exactly. Can't mention it. Or Isabel Oakshot or you know, any yeah. of these creepy yeah. people, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I'm not sure if it's a deliberate bias or, in fact, if it's just a, a habit that has been picked up by being a newsreader. But I just think that thing of saying to people, please let them finish their point, yeah, yeah, yeah. only really seems to happen when somebody's saying something quite absurd on the right yeah, and yeah. somebody on the left says, no, just a minute. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. I know, I know. It's, it's yeah, I mean, it, the BBC's been so noddled for so long Mm. You know, and, and all the sort of middle and senior management now are people who've been brought in by, you know, Director General and BBC Board, which is you know, completely stuffed with Tory placeholders. Yeah, so, that's quite yeah. How yeah. extraordinary that they constantly, well, the social media constantly accuses them of being woke and left-wing. Yeah. Well, that's it's, tactic, it's a way of attacking it? them, it's isn't it, really? It's a mm. very effective tactic. You accuse, yeah. you just sort of redirect all the accusations of bias, which would reasonably apply to you onto the other side. Yeah, it's what Trump does all the time. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. Ah, well. <laughs> so I'm fascinated to find out the things that you've chosen to put into a time right. capsule because yeah. it, from the myriad of things that you've been involved in, George, it's extraordinary, your career. It mm -hmm. seems I have friends who, whenever I mention something that they think is a good idea, the next day they ring me up and say, oh, I had a look at the company name for that, and, and it's free. We could start that. Right. And I say, no, it's just a conversation at lunch. Yeah, yeah. And I have a feeling you're slightly like that. that yeah. if, you, if you catch on to something, you don't let it go. Yeah. No, there's been, which has led me into some crazy places and crazy <laughs> situations. <laughs> yes. Yes. As I've read yeah. <laughs> over yeah. the years. Well, mm -hmm. okay. Well, let's find out what your things are. Let's start with number one. So it sounds like a weird one to want to keep and not to bury forever, to mm -hmm. want to retrieve. But it's a memory which has sort of, in a weird way, become quite precious to me. And this is the time I got very nearly stung to death by hornets. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all love that happening. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it's very strange because I really love hornets. And in fact, my respect for them has only increased since this unfortunate episode. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I, was, I was in West Papua, which is this occupied territory which no one ever talks about mm. uh, but is occupied by indonesia 
in extremely brutal means, and that occupation was kind of endorsed by the UN and and the US and other powerful people. And and ever since then, the West Papuan people have been under this military regime and are gradually being pushed out of their own land, mm. and their forests are being destroyed, and all sorts of horrible things are happening. That's been going on a long time, hasn't it? It has been going on a long time, since, um, well, since 1963, officially. Amazing. Um, yeah, and I went over in 1987 to investigate what was happening there, mm. and um, I spent six months altogether trekking across West Papua, uh, avoiding some very scary soldiers and fleas <laughs> who... who because you weren't supposed to be there at all. You know, it was mm. it was completely forbidden territory to outsiders and trying to work out what the hell was going on there because there hadn't been any reporting from West Papua at all. And one of the things I wanted to do was to link up with the rebel movement, which in a sort of rather desperate sort of Polish World War II style were trying to take on this very large military machine with mm. bows and arrows, effectively. And I'd made contact with one of the military commanders in, in the rebel movement. And me and my friend Adrian Arbib, the photographer I was working with out there, were waiting and waiting in this little fly-blown town, as it was then called Jayapura, on the north coast of West Papua, to make contact with the people who were going to take us into the forest and show us what they were doing. And uh, we waited for a fortnight and were getting really frustrated and bored and slightly scared because you know, the military kept checking us out every so often. Some bloke with a with an army haircut and army boots, <laughs> but civilian clothes would come around and very unsubtly um, <laughs> say, so are you are you still enjoying your 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 tour of Jaipur? <laughs> <laughs> Clearly very suspicious of us. And you know, because there were the occasional. European business person would come into this town, Jayapura, but you weren't allowed to go anywhere else. And so, right. yeah, and so um, our cover story was getting thinner and thinner. And, and what, day, was your cover, what was your cover story? Were you uh, sort well, of saying we were so looking at the nature or something? Bird watching, yeah. Bird ah, watching. yeah. And, and I, it was pretty safe for me because you know, I could name all the birds and describe mm-hmm. their habits and <laughs> <laughs> being a nature nerd. But every day we went off uh, either together or by ourselves to try to just find something to relieve the boredom. I mean, there was nothing to do in the town, but yeah, we were close to the forest, close to the beaches. So, you know, there were some nice things to do, except we weren't really in a state to enjoy them. You know, it was mm. a state of great anxiety. And there were several occasions we nearly got killed uh, by humans or, or otherwise out there. I mean, it was a really mad mission. Anyway, um, on one of these days, I took a minibus down to the very end of the road. There was only one road going out of Jaipura, and it went past the rubbish dumps and down to a couple of settlements. And then at the uh, the road just stopped, and mm. you could walk into the forest. And the forest there is amazing. I mean, it's full of these great big hornbills and uh, cockatoos. Um, if you're very lucky, you'd see a couscous, which isn't actually a Moroccan dish, but a <laughs> a very furry teddy bear-like marsupial, which lives in the trees. Amazing. Um, elsewhere, there are tree kangaroos, birds of paradise, uh, bird-winged butterflies. I mean, it's amazing, amazing wildlife. Yeah, quite unique as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Lots of endemic species, mm. lots of endemic languages for that matter. I mean, the horror of what's been done there is... is just defies imagination. So mm. much has been lost. Anyway, and so I uh, got off the bus, w- w- walked for a bit, trying to find the sort of least disturbed forest I could, but obviously being close to the road, there was a fair bit of settlement in the forest and 
quite a lot of what's called Sweden agriculture, where you do sort of slash and burn. You mm. you know cut some forest, burn the remaining trees, farm for a few years, and then move on to the next patch and let the yes. forest re- re- regenerate. Regenerates, yes. Yeah, and I was walking through a patch which had quite recently been burnt. And it was a hot day, as it usually was. And I had my T-shirt off, just wearing shorts and walking boots. And I must have brushed against this burnt stump. <laughs> um, and and I sort of scarcely noticed that I'd done so. But I walked on about five yards, and suddenly I was covered in these enormous black hornets. And these, oh, wow. these, these black jungle hornets, you know, we'd heard that three stings would kill you. They're really, really scary things. They're, they're like those things in the Hunger Games. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they're really just terrifying creatures. And, and huge, you know, even bigger than the hornets we get here and, and shiny, black, iridescent things. Quite mm. beautiful. I mean, stunning, but best seen from a distance. Anyway, <laughs> um, and I, they'd obviously all buzzed out of this stump when I, when I brushed against it um, to see who was attacking them. And I knew exactly what, what you have to do, which is to stand stock still, not move a muscle. Right. So they think you're just a tree or something, and then they gradually disperse. And so they swarm all over you? They swarm all over you. You, you oh, can feel word. you're just covered in them, and you have to be, you, know, you really have to keep your cool. You have to stand stock still. And so I did, and I was doing really well, and most of them had dispersed. And, and I was like, I can do this. You know, I, I can do this. And I was, you, know, you just hold your breath and you lock in and you say, I'm not going to move. And then, because I was wearing shorts, there was one coming up my inside leg. Oh, God. And it went in under my shorts. And I was just <laughs> like, ah, ah. And finally I went, no. <laughs> and I started thrashing at them with my T-shirt and jumping up and down and stamping. And then... Then the sting started coming, and each oh, one is like a hammer blow. It's just bang, bang, bang. And I, I got stung eight times, and I was sprinting through this sort of torn-down forest mm. and shouting and waving my shirt, and and I thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to yeah. die being stung eight. And you could straight away, you know, I could feel the poison coursing through my body, you know, very, mm. very powerful toxin. Oh, God. And... And I ran and ran until I saw the the house of the people who must have cut that bit of forest. And it was like all the houses there to keep out of the way of mosquitoes. It was on stilts. So it was yes. about 12 feet off the ground, mm-hmm. beautifully constructed. I mean, they're really, it's very simple, but very beautifully made these houses uh, with a long ladder going going up to the platform, which, which the house was, was built on. Right. And I Is said that, at the bottom. I didn't know that. Did mosquitoes only fly at a certain height? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So it's, yeah. It's really an incredible. Like carrot flies. <laughs> yes, that's right. Like carrot flies. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, wow. Yeah. So I stood at the bottom of the ladder and shouted, help, help. I've, I've been stung. Well, I, I said, I've been bitten by insects because I didn't know all the words. I, I've, I've been bitten by insects and, and now I'm going to die. You've got to help me. Mm. No, no one came up. No one came oh, up. Lord. And and as that and you know and people are normally very helpful and hospitable in West Papua mm-hmm. and it's like what's going on, so I, I I swarmed up the ladder, I got onto the platform and and I could see inside the building there was a whole family there, wide eyed and trembling, <laughs> um, <laughs> sitting in the dark of this little house and I was, and I sort of stood in the doorway and said, <laughs> well, yeah, there's a man right. standing there shouting <laughs> bite. Die, bite. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, it's a crazy-haired white guy with eyes out on stalks say, <laughs> saying, I've been bitten, I've been bitten by insects, and you, you've got to help me. And they were just sitting there, like, in this state of terror. 
Mm. And then I stepped forward and hit my head on the lintel because the doorways are very low there. And and I fell straight into the middle of this family. And, and I sort of leapt back and it was like, oh, God. Yeah, and 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 then the the father in the family, he's so he's tr- he's talking to me, but I, I'm not taking it in, and he, he's he's trying to calm me down and and trying to get me to explain what the matter is. And I said, look, it's very simple, very simple. I was walking through the forest. I got attacked by insects. Eight of them bit me, and now I'm going to die. Mm. And he's just like shaking his head, his mouth hanging open, like, no. I say, yes, yes, yes. Eight insects bit me, and now I'm going to die. And then he goes, ah, saranga. And I say, yes, saranga. And then (laughs) it dawned on me that instead of saranga, which means insect, I'd been saying samanka, which means watermelon. (laughs) (laughs) How terrifying. Eight watermelon? (laughs) Yeah, eight watermelons attacked by watermelons. (laughs) Oh, my word. And so then he said, right, 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 come in, come in, come in. You know, as soon as it was explained, suddenly, you know, it was all action, right, we're going to help you, you know. And, and so, and they knew what to do. Well, well, yes. <laughs> so, so I imagine. So he said, right, lie down, lie down here. And and he made me lie down on my front. And these, I mean, I can't explain how delightful and hospitable and kind almost everyone in West Papua is. It's really an amazing thing. Is he just mm. lie down, calm down, you're going to be all right. And so I lie down, and he starts rubbing something into my back, and it's got a really lovely, sort of warming, soothing feeling, this stuff. And it's a, this is some ancient jungle remedy, you know, <laughs> which is known to the people here, which cures you of these hornet stings. And I was going, oh, God, it's a good feeling. And then I smelt this familiar smell. <laughs> I, thought, I know that. I know that. And I looked round, and he was holding this tub of Vicks vapor rub. <laughs> and, I, and I said, no, no, I'm going to die. And I just <laughs> run out of the house, forgetting it's 12 foot off the ground. I just go, I mean, it's like in the cartoon, you know, legs are still, still moving. And I, and I hit the ground. I literally hit the ground running and just go thundering off through, through the forest. And I turn around, and he's, like, standing in the doorway with this jar of Vicks vapor rub in one hand and my shirt in the other, like shaking his head. <laughs> these English are crazy, <laughs> like like an asterisk or something. You know, these Romans are crazy. Mm. So anyway, so I run and run and I get to the road and quite soon one of these minibus taxis come along, which is all constantly plying the roads throughout Indonesia and its territories. Mm. And and so I stop the taxi and I get in and here I am, I'm shirtless, I'm just wearing my shorts and and I and I know that I look crazy, you know, and and so I'm saying it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. You know, I sit down and try to sort of sit down quietly. You see these people moving away from me, and then <laughs> and then I start convulsing, oh and I start God. having these massive convulsions and foaming, and so it's like this, it's a terrifying sight for these poor sods sitting in 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 the minibus with me. Mm. But luckily, it's just a short journey, you know, so twenty minutes, and I get back into Jayapura. And I'm fully convulsing at this stage. And I got hardly any control of, over my limbs. Mm. And I literally crawl across the town square to the um, hotel where me and Adrian were staying. And I managed to crawl up the stairs and push the door open. And thank goodness, Adrian was in the room at the time. Uh. And he looked at me and said, what the? Yeah, I won't say exactly what he said. And um, <laughs> I think and, I can guess. Yeah, and... <laughs> 
and I try to talk. I can't talk. My mouth just isn't making the right shapes. And, and I, but I point to the, you know, by then these welts are enormous. They're like mm. golf balls, you know. So, and he instantly twigs. I mean, he's a, he's a very cool guy, Adrian, and he instantly twigs. And he said, right, sit there. And he just stuffs me with antihistamines, you know, which is exactly the right thing to do. Yeah. And then I pass out. I go out cold for 16 hours. And I come around and, and I'm fine. I'm, I'm Good fine. Lord. So, but it was it was yeah, really terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so, why do you want to keep that memory? Because it's part of me. You know, uh, it's, it's one of those things. You know, we were what twenty four at the time, mm-hmm. and crazy. You know, this is why wars get fought. Because, probably, luckily, twenty four. That's probably why well, you survived. Well, yeah, twenty four, fit and slightly mad, and a sort of belief in your own invincibility, which helps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you really think you're immortal at that age, and. Yeah, this is why wars get fought. This is why so many stupid things happen because young men think that no harm will come to them. Yes. Yeah, and I've done a whole series of really mad trips. Spent sort of six or seven years working in Indonesia, West Papua, in Brazil, in East Africa, investigating stuff which people really didn't want you to find out. Yeah. Um, in really insane circumstances. And, you know, we we should not have come back from that. We, the chances were very slight, but somehow somehow we did. And so. You know, it's part of the warp and weft of me now. And, mm. you know, it's, it's also quite a good story. It is a very good story. <laughs> Do you know what's amazing about it? And it's slightly ironic, isn't it, that in the poorest of countries, that's where people are the most hospitable. Yeah, so true. So true. That is absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. It's ridiculous, though, isn't it? They're the, and, the yeah. people, first people to give you things and they have nothing. And the richer people get, the meaner they become. In fact, there's, there's yeah. a whole lot of science on this. There's, there's right. quite a few, quite a few papers recently published about how it changes your mind getting a huge amount of money. And mm-hmm. it's basically like getting a serious blow to the head or suffering some <laughs> major mental illness or something. You know, it really, yes. really damages you. I know. And you lose your empathy. You lose your understanding of other people. Your connection mm-hmm. with the world. You become paranoid. You think that everyone's out for your money. <laughs> you don't believe in your friendships anymore because they want something from me. I mean, it ruins your life. I, I read mm. a very interesting book recently by Michael Mechanic called Jackpot, and it's talking about the lives of the very rich. And it, you know, I find this very interesting because you know the fairy tale. The fairy tale ending for everyone is you become rich. Mm-hmm. And, but Win what the happens lottery. when you, yeah. exactly what happens when you do? Yeah, your life is basically ruined, you know. And, and he talks about how how you're completely owned by by your money because he's interviewing all these very rich people. Mm-hmm. And and he makes the point that the only two groups of people who have to think about money every hour of every day are the very poor and the very rich. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're very rich, you you're just managing that money is a full-time job. Uh, it comes to own you. We really need to reorganise the world, don't we? <laughs> yeah, it's we madness. Do. It <laughs> yeah. is mad. I, for a long time, have said, I just can't see why we can't all agree that nobody should have more than... I mean, I, I'm quite generous. I would allow a limit of £100 million. That's, well, that's a lot very of money. generous. That is that's a lot of money. That's incredibly generous. Yeah. I mean, you know, mm. that's an untold fortune. Mm. You can do anything you like in your life with that amount of money. And you say, well, if you've invented something that everybody in the world uses, OK, I'm happy for you to be that rich. But billions? Crazy. 
I think that's too much because you can still buy politicians with that money. Ah, you know, you can right. buy quite a lot of politicians with a hundred mm-hmm. million. You, you can buy political outcomes with, and that they money. can't resist it, can they? They, they just can't, resist, can't it. resist it. I know, and, and it's amazing how little money people have to spend to buy politics. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, it's quite... a couple of million pounds, and you get, you know, you're in the, you're in the House of Lords. Well, you're in the House of Lords, or mm-hmm. your oil company can then extract two billion pounds worth of oil because yes. you can get a new licensing regime. You know, it's, it's yeah, yeah. just just amazing how little permission to make vast profits actually costs. Yes. You think that actually, you know, if they had any standards, these politicians, they'd sell it for real money. <laughs> Quite. They'd say, hang on a minute, you're going to make two billion out of this. Yeah, I want to be properly bribed. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, it's terrible. But what an extraordinary experience. I have a friend who climbed Mount Kilimanjaro as a young man, mm-hmm. And while he was on the way there in the dense forest, just at the foothills, one evening he leant back on a log and put his hand down and got stung. Mm. And he saw a scorpion scurry away. And the man said to him, was it a big black one or a little red one? And he said, I I just, I don't know. I've never (laughs) seen a scorpion before. And he went, ah, right. He said, if it was a big one, you will get rather ill. He said, but you'll be okay. If it was a small one, uh, you're going to die. Yeah. Wow. And he lay in the back of a truck, shaking Jeez. with the poison, and survived. Yeah. And it was a big wow. one. Yeah, yeah. No, it's <laughs> it's, uh, it's a scary world. Out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'd know. <laughs> yeah. Yes, <laughs> me. Although, although Tumbridge the... Wells, that's as far as I <laughs> like to go. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 the thing is, I, I, bizarrely and perhaps perversely, I, there's no species of uh, no wild animal, no no wild plant or anything that I'm scared of. But yeah, you know, there's a lot of human beings I'm scared of. Mm-hmm. And yes. human beings are a lot scarier. Yeah, because they're illogical, aren't they? Well, and because they can suddenly amplify the terror. You know, you mm-hmm. or you can be a pathetic little wimp, but you you, you have an AR-15 in your hands and suddenly yeah. you're the boss. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, like an animal, there's no arguing with people either. There's no reasoning. Yeah. You yeah, can't say, yeah. no, hang on a second, this is pointless because I'm no threat to you and I you know no. and I've got a family so I'll just I'll just go shall I and I they think, go no no I, I want to kill yeah. you yeah if people have a dominance mindset if mm-hmm. if the mindset is saying I should be number 1 there should be no competition I have a god-given right to dominate everyone else mm-hmm. there really is you know you can't reason someone out of a position they didn't reason reason themselves into yeah. and that is the ultimate unreasonable position but unfortunately it's the position of Donald Trump it's the position of many of those who come to dominate us because they have that mm-hmm. dominance mindset yeah yeah absolutely i think true of absolute power corrupts absolutely mm. it's that situation isn't it and and bizarrely I, you know i think we Basically, people are good. I think the majority of people are driven by good values, by altruism, by empathy, by community, by sense of belonging, by family, by wanting to do well by other people as well as well Mm -hmm. by themselves. Even if that's motivated fundamentally by selfishness. Well, you know, I think selfishness and greed is part of the equipment. You know, Mm -hmm. it's part of the values. But, you know, and again, there's good research on this, you know, good psychological research showing those are values of ours, but they're not our dominant values in the great majority of people. But there's about 1% of people who we call psychopaths, where selfishness and greed are the dominant values. Mm. And we are, broadly speaking, a society of altruists governed by psychopaths. (laughs) Yes. 
Yes, yeah, astonishing, isn't it? Because they're the only people who are interested in it. There's yeah, always that exactly. thing. I think years yeah. ago, I'm sure this is an argument other people have made, but I remember reading an article in the paper by Stephen Fry saying that anybody who wanted to be a politician should be banned from becoming one. <laughs> exactly. Instantly disqualified. Instantly yeah. disqualified, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Ah, well. Yeah. Okay, so that's your first thing then, being mm-hmm. stung by eight great big black hornets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> extraordinary. That's just about the most extraordinary thing that anybody's put into a time capsule. Oh, well, that's nice to hear. <laughs> Good. Okay, well, let's see where we go. What's number two? So number two, um, it seems a bit weird because it's something that came out of the ground and I want to put it back in the ground uh, because it's, again, something which lodged in my mind at mm-hmm. quite a formative time for me. And I think went on to sort of work its way through my mind and create a sort of sequence of events which led to some of the things that I later did. And right. so, so before I, I went to West Papua and went on those crazy adventures, I worked for the BBC. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I got the job in, in 1985 by battering down their doors. I was I was told by the head <laughs> of the unit, his exact words, if you'll excuse me, you're so fucking persistent, you got the job. Um, <laughs> and Because all I wanted to be was an investigative environmental journalist, and, and they didn't really exist in those days. There was no such job, and certainly not at the BBC. And, mm. and I thought, you know, this is a huge opportunity waiting to be filled, and it's urgently needed. You know, there's so many bad things going on, but there's no one who's dedicated to ex- exposing them, or very mm. few people, and certainly not at the BBC. No. And so eventually I managed to persuade them that this is what they needed. <laughs> and and it was the sort of last of the glory days of the BBC, really, because it, it was the last two years, 1985 to 1987, before Thatcher came down with her coup. Um, mm. You know, she got really angry with them because they'd made this programme called Maggie's Militant Tendency about the cabinet ministers who'd been actual fascists in their youth <laughs> and um, and another series called Secret Society about the unauthorised spending for spyware and, and defence equipment and stuff which hadn't gone through Parliament. Right. You know, this, it's hard to imagine now that this was a BBC, but it had a real go-get-em mentality. It was, mm-hmm. it was brilliant at these things. Well, it, it was their remit. Yeah, exactly. But mm. she swept in in 1987, forced the resignation of Alistair Milne, the Director General, yeah. and just crushed the organisation. It's never recovered. Anyway, during my kind of apprenticeship, I was doing doing radio and, you know, ended up making some, what I thought was some really great investigative programmes. Mm-hmm. But my apprenticeship was making wildlife programmes and, and, and sort of just getting to understand the medium a little bit. And it was fun. It, I, I really enjoyed it. I was sort of champing at the bit, waiting to get on with the thing I was there for. And mm. within a few months, I was able to do that. But in the meantime, I was learning learning the trade. And it was a nice trade to learn. And I knew some archaeologists in, in Bristol, where the Natural History Unit was based at the BBC. So that's mm. where I was, I was living. And one of them told me that one of their colleagues had just discovered this new um, Bronze Age dump basically it's a rubbish dump in the Mendip Hills, oh. quite close to Bristol. And would mm. I like to come along and make, make a programme about it? So it's like, whoa, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who wouldn't? You know, what, what a great opportunity. And so we went up to the Mendips and, and there was this, it was this little swallow hole. You could hardly see it from outside. It was just a tiny little fissure covered in brambles and things. And, you know, it wasn't hard to see why it had taken so long for anyone to find it. Mm. And this was obviously just a hole where Bronze Age people 3,000 years ago were chucking stuff. 
<laughs> and anything they didn't want just went down that hole. So nothing's actually changed. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, same people, different. The yeah. Earth will cope. The Earth. Will yeah, cope. that's right. Exactly. But of course, it copes when the population of the world is about a million people. Yes. Well, exactly, and none of it's plastic, and you know, it all just mm -hmm. it all just goes back in, into the Earth. Although in this case, because of the preservation conditions in this limestone hole, it actually gets protected very well. Right. And they'd found human remains in there, they'd found pots of all kinds, all sorts of bits and pieces. So anyway, um, you slip through this little fissure and down this uh, little wire ladder, which had thrown down. And at the bottom, it opened out into this chamber you could stand up in. And it was, it was quite magical. It was like an Aladdin's cave because... <laughs> All the walls and everything in it, and this great mound of treasure, which was spilling down into the sort of dark abyss, it was, sort of, it was sloping down into some sort of dark nowhere, mm. was all covered in calcite crystals, which were glittering in, in your head torches, and it just looked like you're in a chamber of jewels. It was, oh. it was magic, and most of what you could see around you were bones of different kinds, you know, bones mm. and then bits of pots st sticking out of them. So the archaeologists I was with, they were they were picking up these bones and explaining what they were and, and all the rest of them. And then this, the guy who had first characterized this dump, who was quite a severe, <laughs> a severe type, hmm. he he passes me this um, very distinctive looking bone. It's got a hole in the middle and and a wing on either side, and it's about the size of my palm. It's sort of more or less covered my palm, a bit wider perhaps. And he says, what's that? I said, well, it's an atlas vertebrae. He says, yes, correct, but what species? And I said, well, I don't know, red deer? He said, no, actually, this is this is a, a Bronze Age cow. This is one of their oh. domesticated cattle. And they were a bit smaller than, than the cows are today um, mm -hmm. because they were easier to handle, um, as small ones, you know, because they weren't as tame as cows are today. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that's very nice. Yeah, lovely. And then he picks up this other bone with both hands. And it's about eight inches across. And he hands it to me and it weighs, well, a couple of pounds. And he says, what's that? I say, oh, Atlas vertebra. It's exactly the same bone, but massive. I mean, mm. this huge, huge bone. And it's, you know, it's just the same shape and, and all the rest. And he said, yeah, but of what? Huh. And I go, uh, uh, mammoth? He said, what, in the Bronze Age? And I said, oh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Tell me. He said, same species. This is the wild one. No. What you were looking at was the domestic one. This is the wild aurochs from which the domestic cattle were, were bred. Wow. So the wild aurochs, the cows, the females, are about the same size as cows are today. Mm -hmm. But the, the bulls were absolutely gigantic, monstrous creatures. It was <laughs> 10 foot at the shoulder with like a 10 foot wow. horn span. Proper beasts. And holding this thing, it was, it was like... An electric shock went through me. It was the most extraordinary feeling that you know, this was, it, it seemed so near, so fresh, so close. You know, mm. it was 3,000 years ago, but it like, it felt like it was yesterday. It felt like it had just come from, from the carcass. And, mm. and you know, the, the aurochs didn't go extinct until the 17th century. The last one was killed in Poland, I think, in 1627 or something. Good Lord. And these monsters were roaming among us. And then when you start looking at what other monsters there were, you know, if you go back, not that far, I mean, if you go back to the Eemian, the previous interglacial in, in mm. Britain, when, when there were no humans, the humans had been driven out by the previous glaciation. And so for a while, you just had this sort of Eden-like 
island. Well, actually, it wasn't quite an island. It was mm. connected by Doggerland. I think. I think at the time it was still connected to the continent. Mm. But we had, you know, all the familiar fauna which you and I know and love. You know, we had red foxes. We had hedgehogs. We had badgers. We had blackbirds. We had magpies. Mm. We had hippopotamuses. We had two species of rhino. We had striped <laughs> elephants. We had uh, lions. We had hyenas. Oh yes, sorry. Yes, we had a megafauna as well as all the other stuff we we're, we're familiar with. You know, and we. And we now sort of you know talk about our top predators like badgers. You know we have scimitar cats. <laughs> scimitar cats. Yeah, these they're sort of basically saber tooths. You know they're they're, yeah. both, they're not directly related to saber tooths, but they're exactly the same niche with these enormous great fangs, which they would, they would make ambush attacks. How far back is that? Is that about? So ten? that's that. No, that's a hundred and it's rough, roughly a hundred thousand year, years ago. So right, not was that like long, really. No, no, really, no, really. Blink no. of an eye in geological time. No, it's extraordinary that that those cattle should. I mean, uh, until seventeen hundred, that's amazing. But the yeah. fact that actually the parent of, as it were, the yeah. ancestor of our domesticated cattle, and that within that time they had these tiny ones that they yes, obviously already bred down. They bred, they bred, them, bred down. them down so quickly, yeah, yeah. Because... Which gives you an idea of just how quickly evolution can happen. Well, exactly, exactly. Mm. And you can see why they would have wanted to do it. You wouldn't want to be herding giant aurochs around. No. <laughs> but, you know, and it sort of triggered this whole line of thought of, oh, yeah, you know, it's not just that certain places in the tropics that have a megafauna. A megafauna is the default state of all ecosystems on land mm-hmm. and at sea. Mm-hmm. And the reason we think of a megafauna as being exotic and of lions and elephants as being tropical, you know, where it's confined to a few places in Africa, is because we wipe them out everywhere else. Yes. And everywhere has a megafauna until humans arrive. Mm-hmm. I, I went to a very interesting presentation from a paleontologist called um, Todd Surevel. And his argument was, look, you archaeologists can just give up and go home. Because if you want to find out when humans first came to an island or a continent where they'd never been before, Mm. if you start looking for archaeological evidence, you're wasting your time because it's (laughs) so scarce. You know, the first humans would have maybe left one or two flints, the old little fire site. You would hardly know they were there from Mm. the archaeology. But if you look at the paleontology, in other words, the remains of non-human species, you'll see it instantly because all the big animals just disappear. They fall off a cliff. You'll have these big populations of your elephants, your rhinos, your hippos, your lions, etc., and then they're gone. Mm -hmm. And the fauna would have been what's called naive, which means it wasn't afraid of humans. Yes, of course. So they just stand there and look at you. And you just walk and think, up and What's kill this them. Weird thing? Yes. And you walk up and kill them. That's yeah. right. And megafauna is very susceptible to extinction. It's very easy mm. to tip it over the edge. Well, because they feel no fear, because they mm. think, well, I'm enormous. Well, exactly. Exactly. Nothing, What's nothing this ridiculous thing? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and interestingly, the only populations which have survived are in places where they evolved with humans. And, you know, and before Homo sapiens come along, the sort of homonyms are there and they're a little bit dangerous, but you can keep away from them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you learn, you know, they're not going to wipe you out, but you learn that they're scarier than they look. And so over the millennia, those species learned to avoid human beings, and that's why they're still there. And so there were monsters everywhere. We lived in a world of monsters, and they shaped our minds. I think, you know, a lot of the frustrations of being a human being in, in the 21st century is that we live in a very tame world, 
And yet we've got the hearts of lions. You know, we want to be out there doing battle with monsters, but actually, <laughs> uh, where are the monsters? Oh, we're the monsters now. Yeah, I'm going to take that badger on. That's yes. right, yes. <laughs> well, of course, as we look at that timeline of those things, you say, well, they've survived because they've learned to live with us or they've learned to avoid us, in fact. Mm. But in fact... Now they're finding it hard to do that. Well, that's true. There exactly. are so many of us, and exactly. you, you wonder um, how long any of those monsters I know. will survive. I know, and it's the same at sea. You know, we, I mean, some mm -hmm. of the whales have come back because we stopped whaling, but now they're all getting tangled up in nets and stuff, yeah. all the bluefin tuna being hunted to extinction, the large yeah. sharks, everything. I mean, it's, you know, we, it, it's devastating. It's, yes. it's really hard to see. And then we have no idea what the effect of all the plastic in the sea is going to have. No, no, the plastic. and But even more so, the fishing industry, which is yeah, just, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's now developed technologies where you can sweep up everything. Mm -hmm. You know when a super trawler, a super pelagic trawler, one of these gigantic ships, has been down the English Channel because the beaches are covered in dead dolphins. Uh, they scoop yeah. up the entire shoal of small fish, uh, mm -hmm. but all the things which are hunting those small fish as well, and then they just discard them over the side, dead. Yeah, and just yesterday, as we're speaking, Norway granted the deep-sea mineral exploration licence. It's, it's, it's like, you know, it's this endlessly expanding frontier. We can't leave anything be. We just constantly find something new to exploit, and... You know, eventually we say, oh, well, we're done with this planet. Let's go and find a new one. Well, that's, <laughs> and that's do the, the way they're there. talking. That's what, yeah, yeah. And in a way, the people who are doing it are the billionaires. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and you know, they have this hunger, this, this insatiable hunger. Yes. You know, again, it's like Trump. You know, even when he was president, he was just furious all the time. Yeah. You know, you'd think, you know, I'm number one in the world now, right? I've made it. I've got there. No, 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 it doesn't no. do anything. You're still furious. So, in fact, I therefore should run the world. Exactly, yes. exactly. Yeah. exactly. And then other planets. And then every, you know, yeah. I, I need to be king of the universe. And then he still wouldn't be happy. No. There'd still be a gigantic hole in him. No. Which, which nothing can fill. No prize can fill. And we are constantly bombarded with the view that we can't do anything else. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. in order to survive, we need to live this way. Exactly. And it's a lie, isn't it? It is. It is a lie. You know, we're mm. constantly told this is the natural order of things. This is inevitable. There is no alternative. You yeah. know, Margaret Thatcher constantly, while preaching her doctrine of freedom, would also say there is no alternative. Well, how can it be freedom if there's no <laughs> alternative? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that idea that you have to consume, we all have to yeah, consume at yeah. an enormous rate mm -hmm. in order to carry on. And yeah. what do you want to do? Lose your way of life? But in yeah. fact, what we're doing is we're imposing a way of life on people yeah. that they don't really enjoy. Yeah. No, no, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, consumption, we consume ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. what was that uh, quote from Richard II about the cormorant, which um, consuming means soon preys upon itself? Mm. That's what we're doing. Shakespeare can see that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All that way back. And now it's just got worse and worse. We are dying of consumption. Yes. And licenses are granted to search for more oil when we know yeah. we have as much oil as we'll yeah. ever need. Exactly. Or, or, or can afford to burn. You know, we're already yeah. Yeah. can't afford to burn the oil that's already been identified and is ready for extraction, let alone expanding that, that amount. But you've written about how how the alternative world would look. Mm. And it's not the world that people are constantly fed in the, the lies that we're given about yeah, what the yeah. world will become. It's not a, this living in a mud hut world. No, no. We can live absolutely perfectly fine and yeah. have wonderful lives. Yeah. And, and the and, proof of that is that, that we can all have that. Exactly. Know. 
Exactly. Whereas at the moment, we've got this sort of incredibly dysfunctional system where some people can have private islands, five super homes, a private mm-hmm. jet, massive yachts, supercars, all the rest of it, eat bluefin tuna sushi, and other people are living in mud huts or not even in mud huts on the streets. Yeah. And yeah. You know, that is that the paradise we were promised? Yes. It's terrible, isn't it? I spoke to uh, Deliso Chiponda, uh-huh. who's a stand-up comedian the other day, yeah. and he said that when he goes back to Malawi, where he comes from, mm-hmm. he tells people that some people are homeless in the United Kingdom. Yeah. And people say to him, sorry? He says, <laughs> there are people, they, they haven't got homes, they live on the streets. And he yeah. said, "He said, no, 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 that can't <laughs> yeah. be true. Yeah, yeah, I know. It is unbelievable, isn't it? It is isn't unbelievable. It? Yeah. Yes. The fact that we're not all so ashamed of it that we just yeah. fix it now... It's incredible, really. Who's persuaded us that that's something we can put up with? I know, or or that it's inevitable. You know, even even though in the early stages of the pandemic, the government said, right, homeless people are now a risk to our health, so we've got to sort this out, not for Mm -hmm. the sake of the homeless people, but because we might be infected by them, so they've (laughs) all got to go indoors. And so suddenly all the homeless people were housed. (laughs) The moment they weren't a threat, out you get. Out you get. Yeah. Oh, terrible. But yeah. what a fantastic thing, though, to hold that. <laughs> and to yeah. suddenly see in two items, to see the change in the world, the evolution yeah. of the yeah. world. It's a fabulous yeah. thing. Oh. Well, I envy you. How fantastic. Well, let's put those in then. Would you want mm. to put both bones in? Um, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Why not? Yeah. Why not? As a yeah. comparison. So yeah. people will then instantly, if anybody else finds it, they would realise what you were at. I yeah, think. exactly. Yeah. I like that. Uh, that's nice. Yeah. Okay, great. All right. Let's move on to the third thing, George. Right. Time for some ads. See you in a minute. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Welcome back. There you are, you see, that wasn't bad. Let's go straight back to George Monbiot, who has, let's face it, far more interesting things to say than I ever have. So the third thing is already under the ground. 
um, <laughs> um, so I don't know whether we need to put it in a box or just uh, keep it where it is. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, it's it's a bit of a weird one, but it's also a wonderful one, and it's the rhizosphere. Right. And obviously, everyone listening is going to say, "Sorry, the what?" <laughs> but um, your life depends on it. My life depends on it. Every aspect of our lives, our society, our civilization depends on it. And of course, most people have never heard of it. Mm. And we're doing things which severely compromise its survival. And the rhizosphere is the thin zone of soil immediately surrounding the root hair of a plant. Right. And it's sort of built by the plant, by the root, as it moves into the soil. So so obviously plants move by growing, and they send out these little root hairs. And as they send them out, the root hair creates its own environment. And the rhizosphere is this zone that immediately surrounds it. And the way into this, the way of understanding it, I think, is recognising that plants can talk. Hmm. And um, and and it's as soon as you understand that, suddenly it just opens up this extraordinary world beneath the ground. Yes, they talk in chemical languages, and they do so by releasing very specific and often very complex chemicals, which can only be heard by particular species of microbes living in the soil, particular <laughs> species of bacteria. In fact, some of these chemicals are so specific that they can call out to a genetic variant of one species of bacterium without alerting the other genetic variants of that same species. It's <laughs> mind-blowingly precise. Almost certainly within the next few years, people are going to discover that plants use grammar. In other words, that they use one complex chemical to modify the signal from another complex chemical <laughs> in order to refine that message. I mean, there is there is more to heaven and earth. Honestly, the, the, the yeah. stuff we are only just beginning to discover. Anyway, so what the plant does is it sends its root out into a new sort of crumb of soil. You know, we're mm-hmm. talking about very, very small scales here, but amazing, enormous things happening on these small scales. Mm. And, and when it penetrates that new lump of soil, it sends out these very specific chemical signals saying, you wake up. The rest of you can stay asleep, but you, (laughs) you're the one I'm looking at, wake up. And this particular bacterium or other microbe goes, oh, what, me? Hello? Because most of them live in a state of dormancy in the soil. There's millions and millions of species, but they're quiescent for almost all the time until someone comes along and points them out and says, you. And it's the particular species of microbes which are of most use to the plant because Mm. basically plants can't survive by themselves these microbes can't survive by themselves the soil is like a coral reef it's a biological structure it's created by the organisms that live in it if it weren't for those organisms there would be no soil it's it's a biological structure Mm -hmm. but it's also saturated with symbiotic relationships with these relationships between species which are utterly dependent on each other Mm. having woken up that particular microbe species or one of the one or two species that it's interested in, the plant then floods them with sugar. And the extraordinary thing is that between 10 and 40% of all the sugars that plants make through photosynthesis, they pour into the soil. And it looks like pouring money down the drain. You know, this is, <laughs> it, it looks incredibly wasteful. Well, what they're doing is feeding 
those particular species, especially bacterial species, mm. which then massively proliferate. They gobble up the sugar and they multiply and they multiply and they multiply. And they form this incredibly dense zone of bacterial colonies around the root. That's the rhizosphere. And there, there, there can be more bacteria in the rhizosphere, uh, a higher concentration per gram than in any other system anywhere on Earth. I mean, it, wow. it's, it's incredibly rich in them. And what the bacteria do in return for the sugar is several things. First of all, they release nutrients from, from the soil because the mm. plant can't get to them by itself. It doesn't mm. have the enzymes. It doesn't have the acids. It doesn't have the, the small scale to be able to get into the little crevices and break the mineral bonds and release those minerals so that it can absorb them. Nor, unless it's got a, a nodules on its roots, can it turn atmospheric nitrogen into nitrates, which it needs. But the bacteria can do all of those things. Mm. And so in return for sugar, they deliver nutrients. No. But not just that. They also form a defensive ring around the root hair. And so they'll fight off pathogens. They'll fight off damaging bacteria. They'll fight off damaging fungi. Moreover, if the plant is being attacked from above even, you know, if it's got caterpillars or aphids eating its leaves, it'll mm. send a signal down to the root, release a particular distress call, and the bacteria in the rhizosphere will then take that distress call turn it round using another chemical and fire it back at the plant, firing up the plant's immune system, which then allows it to fight off the caterpillars or, or the aphids or whatever that's attacking it. And it seems like a really clunky way mm -hmm. of firing up your immune system, but that's the way it's evolved because yeah, you know, the plants can't survive without them. Now, you think of those functions and several others besides, and you think, hang on a minute, haven't I heard something like this before? <laughs> about microbes delivering nutrients, protecting you from pathogens, firing up your immune system. There's something, something that rings a bell, and then mm. the human gut. Mm -hmm. And basically, it's exactly the same function. The rhizosphere is the plant's external gut. It's outside of the plant's organs, but it has exactly the same function as, as the gut and its microbes do. Mm. And to make this even more eerily similar, there are around a thousand phyla or major groups of bacteria in the world. And there are four phyla out of those 1,000 which dominate in the human gut. And there are four phyla which dominate in the rhizosphere. And they're <laughs> the same four phyla. Oh, my word. Yeah. Yeah. It's magical. And we all depend on, you know. So life totally yeah. is dependent on those four. Yeah. 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 Extraordinary. And it's just amazing. And what are we doing to it? That... Well, we are ripping through the soil like there is no tomorrow, and there will be no tomorrow. You know, that, mm. I mean, we treat it like dirt. <laughs> we treat the <laughs> soil like dirt. It's beneath us, literally and metaphorically. It's like we don't think about it. We don't even know what it. I mean, we literally don't know what it is. Mm. You know, we know it's a biological structure. We know it's an ecosystem, but it's got characteristics which no other ecosystem anywhere on Earth has. Um, for instance. There's a sort of coordination among the microbes in the soil where, you know, if soil carbon levels drop, the DNA length shrinks across all microbes, where at the same time, the number of RNA operons rises, suggesting a collective metabolic response. There's something really weird going on. I mean, you could think of it almost as a superorganism. I mean, as if it is one organism. Yeah, yes. it's got 
really, really bizarre characteristics. And we don't understand it. And we're totally dependent on it. 99% of our calories come from the soil. And yet we're just trashing it by mm. by the way we plow it, by the amount of uh, fertilizer we put on it, which is very damaging to soil yeah, structure. the chemicals yeah. we put on to kill things, yes. Exactly. The pesticides, they go down through the soil ecosystem, devastating it, tearing yeah. massive great holes in it. Yeah. And so... It's one of those things that no one talks about or very few people talk about, but will probably turn out to be massively more important than all the things we obsess over. Absolutely. You know? We obsess about bees, don't we? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, of course, Which are, of course know, are really important. Fantastically are important. important. Are but, important. But along with all the other insects. That's right. And in fact, are being, you know, bees are being killed off by this class of pesticides called neonicotinoids, and that's mm. horrendous and devastating. But those same pesticides are absolutely devastating to soil organisms too. And that's probably yeah. an even more urgent threat than the threat to the bees. But because we don't see them, and they're much smaller, we're not nearly so exercised. Wow. I thought I was knowledgeable to know about the sort of uh, the fungi that goes through the woods and things and the, the fact that they use that almost, it seems, as a communication system between yeah. trees, yeah. that actually yeah. whole woods can be warned if yeah. damage is being done to another part of the wood yeah. through these messages. But I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think the fungi are amazing, you wait till you get into the bacteria. You know, I've, I've, yeah. I haven't scraped the surface of it here. There's, they are so weird and so amazing. The stuff they can do is... It's just it's mind-blowing. Oh, it's fantastic. These are all brilliant titles for a book, you know. <laughs> I haven't scraped the surface. <laughs> yeah. and, and we're treating the earth like dirt. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, in fact, going back to our first item, I think jumping into the hornet's nest. It's, uh... Yeah, yes. <laughs> oh, George, that's, that's absolutely amazing. Thank you for telling me about that. That's an extraordinary thing. Uh, clearly, something that we we need to take very, very seriously. Yeah. We know nothing about this world, do we really? No, we really don't. We really don't. There was a, a paper written about four years ago, and in some of the publicity around the paper, the author said, we think we might know what soil is now. And <laughs> I caught up with those same scientists a couple of years later and said, oh, how's the research going? You know, have you got any better idea of what soil is? And one of them said, in the light of further research, we haven't a fucking clue. <laughs> Yes. The joy of research, I think. Oh, the joy wonderful. of research is to show us our ignorance. Yeah, it's magic. It's just it's magical, magic. yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, that's number three, George. Yeah. So we have uh, two more things to go. We yeah. have a good thing and a bad thing. You can choose yeah. whichever order you want. I think I'll leave the bad thing till last. Yeah. Okay. So number four is something so ordinary and so commonplace, but utter magic. It's, it's a seashell. Um, I've chosen a very simple seashell, which is a little round snaily shell called the necklace shell. I mean, it's quite, it's very beautiful when you look at it. It's only mm. a couple of centimetres high, very smooth, a sort of compressed spiral, little purple dots going around the spiral, and nothing very much to look at. You wouldn't, you know, no one would put it on their shelf and get other people to admire it. It's not some gigantic conch or one mm. of those things with all the amazing frills and stuff which you get on <laughs> some seashells. But every one of them is a miracle because this seashell was made at atmospheric pressure with ambient concentrations of chemicals. And yet it is more delicate, more robust and more precise than anything a human engineer can make with as much temperature as you like, with mm. as much chemical concentration as you like, and all the rest of it. It is a, a miracle of biological engineering. Mm. Even the simplest one is like utterly mind-blowing. How the hell do you do that? Yeah. 
You know, no chemical engineer can do that. We, we just haven't worked out how to do it. And yet it's done every day. Every day there are these little necklace shells just adding a little bit more calcium phosphate, the next layer, the next layer, the next mm-hmm. layer in this perfect spiral, while at the same time going about their business, doing their thing. Mm. which actually is quite an interesting thing because you'll often find, if you find little bivalve shells on the seashore, a lot of them will have a perfectly circular hole drilled into them. And it's the necklace shell which drills that circular hole. It sort of crawls along, (laughs) finds a bivalve, and then has this little rasping tongue which goes round and round like a drill and just... Oh, that's what it is. Yeah, and then they they suck out the body contents. (laughs) It's extraordinary, isn't it? We walk across a crunchy beach of millions and millions and millions of shells, and then you have whole buildings made up of the remnants of them going yeah, back yes, that's right. millions of years. Yeah, It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's amazing. And it all goes on and will go on yeah. before and well after we're gone. Yeah, yeah. And these are millions of miracles. I mean, every one of them. You know, if you mm. were to spend your life saying, right, how can I make one of these? You wouldn't get there. You'd never <laughs> no. get there. However great your expertise, you just couldn't do it. No. No. Is it the building up? To, now, this goes through nature again and again. I think I may have mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when I was talking to someone, and I called it the Fenerbahce sequence, but mm. it's the Fibonacci. Uh, Fibonacci sequence, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that whole thing that all those things are based on that piece of maths. Yeah. yeah. In fact, the universe and the solar system, they sort of, they make sense, don't yes. they? Yes. You know, there are these recurring principles which just come back again and again at all these different scales, you know. Mm. And I'm very interested in fractal scaling. To go back, you know, fractally scaled system is one which has the same structure at any level of magnification. Yes. And it gives a system a great deal of robustness if it's fractally scaled. So the soil, going back, is fractally scaled. It has the same structure at the microscopic level and at the macroscopic level. And, and right. that means that it has this extraordinary structural resilience. If it weren't for that and and other characteristics, it would just be swept off the land. You know, first rainstorm, first wind which comes along, there'd be a dust bowl. Mm. And the only reason there isn't a dust bowl is that it's been structured by the organisms which live there. But the structure built by the bacteria is fundamentally the same structure which is built by the giants of the soil like ants and worms Mm. and, and just built and built and built. And then... You know, the necklace shell is fractally scaled. So the tiniest spiral has got the same structure as the largest outer spiral. So as it grows, yes. it grows on exactly the same structural paradigm as it starts with. Incredible. And as you say, extraordinary that those things are so fragile and yet so robust. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so light and thin. You know, mm. when, when when the animals died and, and you've just got the shell in your hand, it's like it could be blown away by the wind. Yeah. And yet... You know, you try to crush it with with your bare hand, you can't do it. <laughs> we should just sit and contemplate yeah. for a moment. Yeah. I think it's extraordinary. What a fantastic world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how easily, in such a short period of time, almost devastated it, almost destroyed I it. I know, I know. And, and we don't know what we're doing. You know, we're like no. kids going around with a hammer, just smashing Ming vases. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we could be regarded as as the greatest pest the world has ever had, or, or almost like an infection. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't want to see us that way because I no. see a lot of wonder and magnificence among human beings as well. You know, we, we are incredible. I mean, we're mind-blowing creatures. Well, the fact that we're the first, I would imagine, and there's me doing it, imagining that we're mm. able to do that. Yeah. You know, maybe in the whole history of everything, we're the mm. first to understand it to some extent. Yeah, yeah. And that there's be. so much more to understand and we can continue to learn that yes. is an amazing thing. Yes, and we can pass that learning on and we can build that learning, build great mm-hmm. pyramids of learning. I mean, that is astonishing, you know, and our ability yes. to communicate with people we've never met, with people of different generations. You know, we can pick up a Shakespeare play and read it and mm-hmm. enjoy it and laugh at the jokes. Yeah, you know, it, it's incredible. I mean, we are ourselves a, a great miracle and yes. create miracles every day. You know, there is an utter wonder to humanity, which feels very much like the wonder I feel in, in nature as, as well. So mm. I don't want to write us off, but at the same time, stuff we do is just just horrendous. Yes. You know? and but we are completely capable of, of turning that round. We are. I'm, I'm convinced we are. So I would say I'm pessimistic about what we do and optimistic about what we are. <laughs> Lovely. Okay, well, let's put that necklace shell in as your fourth <laughs> yeah. item. Okay to represent that, the amazing nature of the world. Lovely. Okay, so finally, just something you want to get rid of. Yeah, so it's going to sound really weird and really unfair. This is something I want to bury and never see in this country again. Is it Margaret Thatcher? uh, Well, (laughs) I bet that's been done before. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, when when she was buried, I mean, and I'm sorry if any of her family are listening and this might upset them, but this is the way the world is. I was staying in a guest house in Consett, so as you can imagine, not yeah. a great area of the yeah. world. To, and the man I was staying with came in when I was having breakfast and turned the television on, and it was her funeral going on. Right. And I said to him, I didn't expect you to want to watch this. Uh-huh. He said, I'm just making sure the bitch is dead. <laughs> I'm not coming out again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. No, I, I, I did. I mean, I did have various politicians in mind, but I thought, I bet you've had that a hundred times. <laughs> so it's is, you know, people would think that you know, you'll think, what? Sorry, what the hell? It's the pheasant. <laughs> ah. And now pheasants are magnificent creatures. You know, so when mm. you see a male pheasant strutting in his pomp with all his bronze feathers and his wonderful colours, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're just amazing creatures. But yeah, they're from China, though, aren't they? They are, and they're an absolute plague in this country. And they're mm. only here because these idiots in wax jackets <laughs> with double-barreled names and double-barreled shotguns want to blast them out of the air. Yes, who own all the land. They own all the land, and they release about 50 million of them every year. Now, wow. these these are large, omnivorous birds. They eat everything. They just rip through our ecosystems. They'll eat the caterpillars, they eat the spiders, they eat the baby lizards and the baby snakes, they eat the, mm-hmm. the worms, they eat the the frogs, they eat the seeds of the plants, they, they're absolutely devastating to wildlife. And then in order to protect them, the gamekeepers kill everything that the pheasants aren't killing. They kill <laughs> the hawks, they kill the owls, they kill the, the stoats and the weasels in industrial mm. quantities, and stoats and weasels are both amazing creatures, really, really interesting, complex social lives. Mm. They kill the foxes, they kill the crows. I mean, you know, some of it they kill legally, some of it they kill illegally. But, you know, you know, if there's, if there's gamekeepers around, you don't see yeah. goshawks, you don't see hen harriers, you know, they they just take out. 
so much of our wonderful wildlife. No, absolutely. I mean, hen harriers ought to be as common as sparrowhawks. Yeah, and- exactly. Should be everywhere. Same with goshawks. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's 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 really horrible and incredibly cruel. Also, you know the way they trap some of these mm. animals, but also the way the pheasants are shot. You know, a huge proportion of them are wounded and not recovered and die slowly of of their gunshot wounds. Mm. And these are basically. I mean, it's actually is a very interesting question: Are these domestic animals or are they wild animals? because the law just twists and turns in order (laughs) to allow this to happen. So when you are breeding them in pens, they're classified as as livestock, and you can get various tax breaks and other concessions from the government because you're farming livestock. Mm. But you're not allowed to shoot livestock. That's, That's illegal. So the moment they're released... (laughs) <laughs> they become wild animals so that you're allowed to shoot them but oh, at the end of the at the end of the season they round up the surviving pheasants and trap them back in in enclosures in order to breed from them later but mm. you're not allowed to do that to wild animals so as soon as you start <laughs> rounding them up they become livestock again however if during the roundup one of them flies into the road and causes a, a car accident you're not liable for it because at that moment it becomes a wild animal again. <laughs> it looks slightly as if the law is biased in favour of people who want to keep pheasant. Seriously, Ovid's metamorphosis had nothing on on this law. You know, this is a magical creature which can just transform from one <laughs> one shape into another whenever it wants. It's a shapeshifter. But every other invasive species that we have in this country is treated as such. And yeah, we yeah. desperately try to reduce the numbers, don't we, or keep them down. Yeah. So people are talking about, can we wipe out grey squirrels? Yeah, yeah. People are saying, let's oh, well, kill them as soon as we see them. Mm. Pheasants, no. Ring-necked pheasants, no. But Reeves yeah. pheasant, silver yeah. pheasant, Lady Amherst pheasant, golden pheasant, of which there's some tiny little populations in this country which have escaped from zoos and stuff, those are classified as invasive exotic species which, which should be wiped out. Right. You know, there's probably a few dozen of each of those at large in the English countryside, British countryside, and 50 million of the ringnet pheasants are released every year, but the rules are completely different for them. Now, you know, if this were a working-class pursuit... You know, can you imagine it surviving one minute? Can you imagine it not being <laughs> legislated out of existence immediately? Yes. But yeah, uh, if there were racing pigeons everywhere, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yeah, or greyhounds running greyhounds, wild. Yes, over, exactly. Greyhounds whippets, running whippets, wild all yeah, over the countryside. Whippets, yeah, whippets. Yes, you know, right. people would be going. Well, they've got to be shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Let's poison them all. Yeah, uh, yeah. Of and not only that, recently, uh, a lot of the pheasants that we get are imported from France. Aren't they? They're yes, bred there right. and then they bring that's them right. over. Yeah. And they recently couldn't do it because a bird flew. That's right. So, in fact, the poor people had very little to shoot. It must I have been awful. Terrible. Terrible. Awful. Just really? Terrible. I mean, they had to go back to shooting clay. They had to shoot each other. We just had to go and shoot each oh, other. Well, no, <laughs> you never know. It's weird, isn't it? Because we celebrate these people mm-hmm. and we celebrate their homes and their wealth mm-hmm. and uh, and their way of life as if they are Englishness, as if yeah. they, they, in a way, encapsulate it. But they are such a tiny percentage of the population and live such an extraordinary life in comparison to everybody else that they're really not, are they? They are yeah. what I'd like to think of yeah. as Norman invaders. Yes. Well, in fact, when you go round a stately home and stand back a little bit, you say, what am I seeing here? You realise the aristocracy in this country is a death cult mm. because everything on the walls is to do with death and killing. 
There's the suits <laughs> of armor. There's, the, the, there's all the weapons. There's all the paintings of battles, and then there's the paintings of hunting, and then there's the stuffed animal heads, and there's the yes. there's hideous little dioramas they have. What are they called? Where where you got um, stuffed squirrel playing badminton and stuff like <laughs> yes, that? In, I, know. I, I can't remember what they're called, but oh, tableau vivant and an enormous celebration of their military history. Exactly. Mm. And now, interestingly, the driven pheasant shooting where these psychopaths stand in a line with, with shotguns waiting for other people to drive the birds over their heads. Mm-hmm. That began to develop right at the height of colonial massacres. Mm-hmm. You know, During the Afghan war, the Indian war, um, so many other things that we were doing around the world, we'd develop new weapons for killing colonial subjects in vast numbers. And mm-hmm. we'd developed breech-loading shotguns for killing pheasants in, in vast numbers. And those two things can't be unconnected. You know, there's that idea that if you stand at the top of the social tree, you have a right to inflict mass death, whether mm. it's on people or whether it's on other species. And, and in fact, it's not just a right that establishes your position at the top of the social tree. That, yes. that shows you who you are. Yes. And I think that ethos of mass killing is fundamentally the same, whether it's aimed at people or whether it's aimed at other species. Mm-hmm. The fact that children are blooded. Yes, yes, the hunt, yeah. It's abominable. I know. I know. It is a death cult. It's a death cult. And we look right. up to these people and say, oh, isn't this wonderful? It's tradition. Mm. So it's as traditional as pouring shit into a river. <laughs> <laughs> if you asked how many people in the country, take a survey, how many people have actually ever held a shotgun and shot at a bird? It would be a tiny, tiny percentage yeah. of people. And it's an extraordinarily expensive thing. So yeah. what they do is they suck in people. You say, well, if you become rich, you can almost become us. You yeah. can come and join the gang. Exactly. Exactly. You, know, you can hire these woods yeah. in these areas yeah. and we'll, we'll let peasants push the birds towards and, you. And very importantly, you, you exempt yourself from the normal laws of the land. I mean, just mm-hmm. like that sort of ever-mutating pheasant, which, which sort of skirts around the laws. So uh, another example, you know, that nearly all shotgun users are still using lead shot. So they're spraying this toxic metal across the countryside. Now, right. lead shot in angling, which is mostly a working class pursuit, coarse fishing, mm-hmm. was banned years ago. Yeah, because you're poisoning the ecosystem. But the far greater quantities of lead shot being released every time a cartridge is, is fired, that can continue to be done because, because it's an upper-class pursuit. Mm-hmm. It is, in a way, it's like the old forest laws. You know the word forest doesn't mean a place with trees. It, it originally meant a royal hunting estate, and that comes from the Latin forest, which means outside, or forest, which means outside. Right. So it's outside the laws of the land. The royal hunting estate creates its own law, its forest law, where mm-hmm. the rights of ordinary people are terminated. You you can't pursue your rights of panage and turbury and estivers and grazing and pescary and all the other things which you would mm-hmm. normally do because this this is a, a sphere, a domain, which has been ring-fenced and is outside the normal laws of the land. That's what a forest means, the original meaning of forest. And what we see throughout history is that there's one law for the rich and one law for the poor, and that mm-hmm. the rich live in a forest. They live in a place which is forest, which is outside the usual laws of the land. Yes. And that is part of what having that level of privilege means. And and we see exactly this with pheasant shooting. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's take all pheasant and put them in there. <laughs> Although I am inspired by what you've said almost throughout the whole thing. George, go out and buy my own gun. <laughs> no. 
I don't think that's going to solve it somehow. No, unfortunately, I don't live in a forest. <laughs> it's a little bit Hollywood, isn't it? So like, like, <laughs> yeah, no, it's not violence, the way. Violence will solve it. <laughs> but actually talking about it like this, and hopefully, because listening to you, I think that I'm a worldly man. I think I know many things, but you've told me a number of things today that I was not really aware of. And we need to know these things. We need to be aware of how the world really is, I think. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, you know, because of this two cultures thing, the way at a very early age we have to decide whether we're going to study science or humanities, mm-hmm. loads of people are shut off from it. I mean, yeah. science is scary to people because they have so little contact with it, and yet it's, it's a world of wonders. It's, it's a portal through which you step into a magical domain. Fantastic. George, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. I know how busy you are, and I look forward to reading many more of your wonderful books. Thank you. A a total pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you for hosting me. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, George Bombio. If you'd like to hear more from George, then there are links in the description of this episode to his writing and the TED Talks that he's given on various subjects. They're well worth your time, I promise. And I also hope that more episodes of this podcast will be worth your time. And if you think they are, then why not subscribe? And then you'll get all new episodes as they're released. And all past episodes are, of course, still available. Do rate the show and do get in touch with me or My Time Capsule on social media or via email, mytimecapsulepodcast at gmail.com the theme tune by Pastor P's music is on Spotify if you want to listen to it on its own and this was a cast off production for Acast it was produced of course by John Fenton Stevens right hopefully I'll still be here next week see unfortunately I'm up before the magistrate later this week for assaulting a man at Beaches Brook I've asked for 14 other fences to be taken into consideration bye Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.